As you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to look at verse 1 to 13 this morning. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Here's God's word for us this morning. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, since they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, And write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing, and growing old is ready to vanish away. Please pray with me. Lord God, as we come to your word this morning, we need your spirit to enliven our hearts so that these truths can be written where you intend them to be written. Not simply as external ideas that hang out in the universe somewhere, but as your deep and rich, eternal truths that are coming into contact with our lives, with our hearts, with our minds, with our our whole selves, so that we can be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. So Holy Spirit, I plead with you that you would work through your word to bring your truths to our people, to your people this day to my words, and to our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love how this passage starts. He gets right to the point. Now the point is this. Here's what we're saying. And he goes from there. Now the beautiful part about this passage is he's taking a lot of these details. The author of Hebrews has built from chapters 5, 6, and 7 
and he's culminating them in this beautiful picture how Christ is this far and away better priest. And then he's going to start in this pivotal transition section, the second half, the new covenant. This is who Christ, this better priest is, and this is the new covenant, the new relationship between God and man that he is bringing in that is then going to build through chapters 8, 9, and 10. So it's a huge hinge section. All of this is for the purpose to grow our confidence in Christ, to deepen those anchors of our soul so that we can trust and love this new and better priest. If I could have a sermon in a sentence, it would be this. Because Jesus ministers better, we can trust him. And I don't mean can like it's just an ability, like it's a possibility somewhere floating out there. It's a, that's a, maybe a, a little bit of get to and a lot of must. We get to, we must trust him and rely on these rich covenant promises. So I'm trying to both help see these details along this way in my outline. If you look down at that insert in your bulletin and it looks a little too many points, that's my attempt to try to walk through all of these details and get the points that we can trust Christ, we can have confidence because he ministers better. And the way, the demonstration of his better ministry is in his position and his place and through these patterns that the Old Testament builds into the new. And then we get to move on to see how those, we can trust him because he has a better promises. That's the better promises of the New Testament, the new covenant. And we'll see how those are in four specific ways. All right. So where do we start? We started back in chapter 7, verse 22, when the author said that Jesus is the guarantor. He's the planner, the founder, the beginner and finisher of this better covenant. So there's nothing else that the listeners or readers of this book originally, or us by extension today, there's nothing else needed for you or me to be in this new covenant. We don't need another priest. We don't need another sacrifice. We don't need a new temple. All of those things were important, and they were pointers and patterns of who Christ is and what he's going to do for our, on our behalf. Because God enacted, he anchored and authored this new covenant through Christ on behalf of the work of Christ and keeps you and I secure through the ongoing prayer and intercession of Christ, there's nothing else to be done by me or you. It wasn't my work that got me in, and it's not my work that's keeping me here. He keeps me secure the whole way through. One author puts it this way, that we cannot qualify for grace, either on the front end or in the middle, in any way. If it helps, this illustration might draw out what we're trying to get at. When I was in, in the Marine Corps a number of years ago, I had to drive a, a lot of gear through the middle of the desert. And I wasn't the one that could drive this size of truck because it was carrying a lot of stuff. And so we had a, a local uh, driver. And he was taking us on this road that was far away from anything. I didn't understand the road signs. I didn't know where to stop for gas. 
I could have looked at a map, but it wouldn't have helped one single bit. I had to rely fully on him getting in the truck and getting us going and knowing all the right turns, knowing that there was gas in the car, in the truck, knowing that when we got there, that was actually where we needed to be. None of that was dependent on me. I had to be fully dependent on him. That's kind of the point of this new covenant. I didn't get myself there. I'm not driving anything. And I have to be fully dependent on God in this work of the covenant to show me the way, all the way. If that helps, that's going to drive us. Okay, sorry. That's going to drive us to get these points to see how Christ grows our confidence because of where he is, what he's doing, and the patterns that show who he is. So first, the position that Christ is in. In verse 1, it says, We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, this position isn't uh, important necessarily for us because we take it for granted that we get to sit down often, all over the place. But what is so significant, significant in this book, the author of Hebrews goes out of his way in the very first three verses of this book. You remember back in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3? He said that Christ, after making purification for sins, he sat down. This is the position of not only finality, he's accomplished what he aimed to do, but it's proven that there's nothing else. He's not going to have to kind of sit on the edge of his seat just in case he's seated. Not comfortably, he's not kicking back in his lazy boy, but he's seated because it's finished. This is in contrast to the Levite priest. You remember those guys? You remember how many chairs they had in the Holy of Holies? That would be zero. There were no chairs because their work was never finished. Day in, day out, more sacrifices. Year in, year out, constantly offering new sacrifices for sin. So Christ's work in this position being sat down is finished. It's done And now, his ongoing work of intercession is what he's about, what he enjoys to do. And that's why we can have more confidence that he's seated, but we can also have more confidence of his place. Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Where is Christ right now? He's still there. He's constantly living to intercede on our behalf. He's he's connected to the right hand of God the Father in that important place. His ministry here comes with continued confidence and a continuity. It's ongoing. He's not going to have to get up and leave and go take care of something else. With this comes the true and genuine trust that we can have. This is not on our own efforts. This is not a priest that was trying to take care of enough of his business. And that's why it makes sense that he highlights, the author here highlights that the earthly priests had to bring something for their sacrifice. They're continuing to have them do that. And if Jesus were on earth again, he also would be required under this Old Testament system to bring another sacrifice. But he's done. He's seated. 
and his continual ministry is to plead to the Father on our behalf. One commentary puts it this way, the point emphasized in verse 2 that the possibility of access to God through a Levitical and earthly arrangement no longer exists because of their intrinsic inadequacy. It's built to not be enough. That's why it had to keep happening. Access is possible and guaranteed now in Christ only through the ministering priest who serves in the heavenly sanctuary. That's where Christ is. And so we have a, a deep and anchored, a, a full confidence in Christ because of his position, his place, but especially his pattern. So catch this. In verse 3 through 5, he mentions these earthly priests and what they were about, what they were doing, what they're constantly going on. That it was by their appointment that they came to serve. And the appointment that Jesus had was by divine appointment, not simply by their birth order that they are born into the tribe of Levite and and had that uh, yearly obligation or duty to come and serve. Jesus here serves in the true tent after which all the other patterns follow. The tabernacle that was established in the desert that tent that the Israelites packed up and moved with them time and time again, that wasn't the true lasting place. It was the pattern that we get to see that represents the heavenly reality where Jesus is now ministering. And the patterns of the gifts and the sacrifices in verse 3, the, the offerings to the Lord that the priest constantly made, those are all pointing forward to the once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus has done. In the next couple chapters, in chapters 9 and 10 specifically, we'll get into more of what that sacrifice that Jesus offered on your and my behalf, what it was and how it actually accomplished everything that he intended and that we need for it to accomplish. And it's interesting in verse 4, the author goes on to say that if Jesus were on earth he wouldn't even be a priest at all. He didn't actually come from the right tribe. He wasn't appointed in the same way that any of the Levite priests were. He he was in the line of Melchizedek, we saw earlier in chapter 5 and 6. But God now, God has appointed him. In verse 6, it says that Christ has obtained a ministry. This is a form of verb that is emphasizing that God himself is the one that has done this. So that the point is these copies, these shadows that we get to see all throughout the Old Testament are anchoring our confidence in the one true reality that is Christ Jesus himself. Because it's Christ's sufficient sacrifice, his power to apply that sacrifice to sinners such as me and you, and then to change our hearts to lean toward himself. That's where we're going in the second half of this passage. All of these details, the demonstration of Christ's better sacrifice, the place, the position, and the patterns, they're all trying to get us to remember or to uh, 
ask the better question of where is our confidence coming from? What's the source of our confidence today? I think in a sense, we have a similar problem to the original audience that this author is writing to. They're being challenged with this kind of state of, well, we're, we're not really Old Testament still, but we don't really see how this all is working out for us. This new covenant idea is still kind of new to them. And we might not have the default like they would to go back to this old system. They're not trying to travel back to Jerusalem and find the temple and see that it's in its full glory and reestablish this priestly system with sacrifices. But they do have the same problem that we have today as we try to externalize what God is saying through this new covenant that must start internally. We're trying to have rituals. We're trying to have uh, external things, efforts that we can put into work, whether it's believing enough or putting ourselves together so we can come to a place like this, making sure all of our ducks are in a row, spiritually speaking. The author is here is saying, the work is finished. Your efforts didn't get you in, and they won't keep you in. It's Christ and Christ alone. And so we, we need to ask this question, what is new then about this new covenant? Is it our entrance into the new covenant that is new? Is that the, the limit of it? Is it our access to God is deeper and richer? Is there a, a new Holy Spirit that we can uh, inter, interact with and engage? Is, is it a different connection to community that isn't just within a specific tribe or a nation or a people? Is it better reliability of his promises? Is he going to keep everything that he told us? Or is it the strength of his commitment? He just really means it this time. Where is the source of our confidence? What got me in and what keeps me in? That's where this next section the fact that our confidence can grow because Jesus brings us better promises that weren't reliant on some external source in the first place, that weren't reliant on our work to get us there ever because Christ has done it all. So let me walk through these better promises. First, we need to see that in verse 6 and 7, the author emphasizes overemphasizes that Christ has obtained a ministry that's more excellent, much more excellent than the old covenant in any of the ministry that priests had. Why does he say that? What makes it better? Why is it so much more excellent? Because the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted. It's grounded on better promises. Those promises are what he is going to show us in this quote from Jeremiah 31 in verses uh, the second half of 8 all the way through 12. We're going to get there. But first he says there's a fault. If the first covenant had been faultless, he says in verse 7, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What's the fault? Why does it, in verse 13, he says it's, it's obsolete. The first one's done. In verse 8, he says he finds fault with them when he says, and then he's going to quote this whole passage from Jeremiah 31. So what's the fault? What was lacking? First of all, in the direct context, he is God, 
in Christ finds fault with them being the priests. That's exactly where Jeremiah 31's context is. Jeremiah time and time again goes out of his way to say the, the people have gone astray because their leaders, the shepherds of the sheep, have led them astray. Yes, our hearts are inclined to want sin and to follow a path of evil, but when we don't have those restraints, the people that are kind of leading us and guiding us, we're going to flee towards sin. So God finds fault with the priest, first of all, but it's with all of our sin tendency, the nature that we have to go and do something else, or to think that when we come, when we come to worship, when the people came to the offering place, it was the work that they could do that would gain their acceptance with God. That's how the covenant is found fault. The old covenant there. So what's changed? In verse 5, he says he serves a copy and shadow. The covenant had faults in that because it was only meant to be a copy and shadow. So what's new and real and full and perfect, complete about this new covenant? It's because God's promises here are going to be enacted on Christ's work fully and finally. So here it is. First of all, in verse 8 and 9, Jeremiah is quoted in unpacking all of these statements that God will. If you skim through that passage really quickly, there's actually six times that God specifically says, I will. Verse 8, when I will establish a new covenant. Verse 10, will I will make with the house of Israel. Halfway down, I will put my laws. I will be their God. I will be merciful. I will remember their sins no more. Overstating that it's God's work. He's the one doing it. One commentator says, the main problem with the old was not that it lacked grace, but it was an external administration of salvation. That it, is, it did not convey to people the inward power needed to fulfill its demands. It is in this respect that the new covenant is better. It is able to seek, succeed where the old one failed. The new covenant works internally. It transforms those who come to God through that new covenant. Because it's in Christ and it's God who will do it. Let me highlight four ways, four promises that God will in this new covenant that should anchor our confidence in who he is and what he's doing. First in verse 8 and 9, when God says, I will make or establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, sometimes readers of the Old Testament will see, oh yeah, that's just a way of talking about all the people of Israel, the house of Judah, house of Israel. But in this context, Jeremiah is talking about the people in the exile. And one of the reasons is in the exile is because after that horrible period where the kingdoms were divided, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, they were brothers at odds with each other. That's part of the reason 
and all these other sin patterns that had sent them in exile in the first place. And so God's not just saying, oh yeah, a bunch of people out there, you'll be brought back. He's saying, brother and brother, northern and southern, you're going to be reconnected, reconciled to one another because you're reconciled to God. I hope that's a deep, deep, rich promise that we get to see when God reconciles us to himself. It doesn't stop there. That promise continues on and overflows in really rich, deep ways with one another. And we see that as well. Then in verse 10, he says, I will make this covenant with the house of Israel. And that's when they're united into one people. So that everyone will know the Lord. Second incredible promise is that God will write his law upon our minds and hearts, down in verse 10. This is the covenant that he says he will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. What does it mean to have God's law put in our minds, written on our hearts? First of all, the idea, the word that's behind minds is is not just brains. It's much broader and richer than that. It's the whole thought and intention of what we're thinking about. What is on our thoughts? God says, I'm going to put my law there. I'm going to write it on your heart, your motives, your desires, your very will. What drives you to make the choices you do? That's the place where God's law will be written. It's no longer an external list of to-dos or don'ts. It's an internalized form of shaping what you think and what your intentions are, what your desires and your motives are, So out of the overflow of your heart, you can act in joyful obedience of this God. This is exactly what Paul's picking up on in 2 Corinthians 3.3 when he says that these laws will be written not with ink, not just an external list, but with a spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, but on the very tablets of human hearts. That's where God's law is aiming. Now, what's important here is that it's specifically, Jeremiah is specifically talking about God's law. The Mosaic covenant included the Ten Commandments. And the way that Jesus takes those in the New Testament is not to say, yeah, scrap those, let's come up with some new ones. He fulfills them. He brings them in and emphasizes that they're a law of love, not a law of duty. But when he's showing us here that he's going to write those on the law, the law on our minds and our hearts, it's to perfect the conscience of the believer so that I can be freed, so I can find the liberty and the enjoyment of obedience not the weighty, wrong duty and obligation. That's going to come up a little bit more in in chapter 9, so we'll get to that later. So first, the promise was that God will reconcile relationships. Second, that he'll write out his law on our hearts and minds. Third, that God will be known by all his people. In verse 11, 
He says that they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Clearly, this is not saying, yeah, if you were a teacher before, forget about it. You don't need to teach anymore. But he's saying there's not going to be a middleman. There's no mediary in between who God is and who can know him and not just know about him. Please catch this word in Hebrew is yada. It has a deep, personal, relational understanding. It's not just I have a statistics memorized about this God somewhere up there. But he is related to me. He has come down to my level. He speaks our language. He knows our thoughts. He understands our challenges, our, our worries, our sadness, our fear. He gets us. And he wants to work in and through us so that all of his people, not just the old father's, but also the mothers, the children, every age, so that he can draw them to ourselves. And here's how beautiful this is. So they all will know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is echoing what he just said in the second half of verse 10, that he will be their God and they will be his people. That's not a declaration of ownership. It's a description of relationship. When he says that God will be your and mine, he will be our God, and therefore we will be his people, it's emphasizing that this is a covenant promise of a God who will do it. He's saying, because I am pledging myself to you, and in case you ever doubt that, it was through the very life and death of his own son that he comes to us and says, I'm your God. In relationship, deeply committed to you, never going to leave you or forsake you, going to help transform you by my own Holy Spirit. And therefore, you will be included in my people. You will walk the way I want you to walk. You will live the way that honors me. And the law that was an external source of obedience will now be an internal source of joy. You'll see how it is to live in the family of God. And you will know him. Not as a harsh deity. but as a faithful Lord. Finally, in verse 12, the summary that Jeremiah makes of all the reasons why this can be true and possible hinges on that little word, for, because, or since this is now true, that he will be merciful toward our iniquities and remember our sins no more. Because that is true, When we see this in Christ, all these other things will be true. That's the final guarantee of all these other details. It's the anchor of all the other promises. Why is this so significant? Because mercy towards iniquity and remembering our sin no more is what keeps us at arm's length from God, much farther than arm's length. 
there's that infinite chasm between a holy God and a sinner like I was. And so when God says, I'm going to relate to you with mercy, what does he mean by that mercy? How would we define mercy? I think the richest part, the deepest aspect of how God shows that is in Exodus 34, not by accident. In the, in the course of the Exodus, when God is leading his people out of slavery, he reveals himself in Exodus 34, verse 6. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He isn't just merciful in his actions. He is, in the core of his being, mercy. And because of who he is, he overflows with that mercy. I think we can define that as not giving what is deserved. I deserved punishment for sin. God turned that away from me. Especially when we look at the context that Jeremiah is writing in. The exiled people deserved anything but mercy. They deserved another hundred years of punishment for the things that they had done to one another and in dishonoring God. But God here is promising through Jeremiah and for us all today that he won't relate to us based on what we deserve through our sinful rebellion, through the ways that we've snubbed him, turned our back on him, chosen lesser things that we thought were better He's going to relate to us with mercy and grace, showing us, demonstrating for us how trustworthy he is by sending his one and only son. So that when God says, I will remember their sin no more, he's not declaring his state of forgetfulness. He's saying, I will take your sin and I'll put it and crush my own son, my dear son who I love. And because the sin will be placed on him, I will look at you, and I will see you without wrath, with full steadfast love and faithfulness, because of who Christ is and what he's done for you. This word that he's remembering our sin no more, it doesn't mean just some mental effort, some trying to recalling ideas about someone or something. It carries with it the thought of doing something to the advantage or disadvantage of others. Remember how many times this is used about God and he, he remembered his steadfast love and he, he acts then towards this people that way or he remembered this no more and he acts that way that's what he's saying. Because of Christ, I will look on a people, uh, an elect people whom I love, and my actions toward them will not be in light of their sin. It'll be in light of his grace and mercy. And because he ends there, he will remember our sins no more. He can say, the author of Hebrews can say in verse 13, that that, that makes the Old covenant obsolete. Not as in it's been erased, but it's been fulfilled. All of those details 
rehashed for thousands of years, 1,400 years. Christ has perfectly fulfilled. So that everything outside, everything external, God can bring through his spirit to write in our hearts so that we can relate to him in joy. One commentator says, the old law was but a signpost, a road sign to direct man. The new covenant supplies the power to make the journey so that when I see Christ, when my confidence in him is anchored in who he is and what he's done for us, I not only get a better sense of, wow, he's amazing, but I'm enabled by his Holy Spirit that has written this law, this law of love and obedience and joyful desire to serve him. It's written that and it's empowered me. It's enabled me. It's driven me forward in this life in the new covenant. If I can ask a couple questions to apply how all of these things, how do we see our confidence and where do I find myself in this new covenant? Let me put it in some stark contrast if I can. Are you adoring your Savior who intercedes for you? Do you see your heart drawn with confidence to look to Christ who is ever living to plead on your behalf that your faith will not be in vain, that you will hold fast to him and what he's done for you? Or are you adoring your own achievements, your performance, your effort to be good enough or at least better than others? Are you enjoying God, his sometimes hard and challenging work of conviction to refine you, to transform you, Are you enjoying him more in his word? Does your obedience of his law that's now written on your hearts, does that deepen your satisfaction in him? Or are you enjoying your status, your self-acceptance, your sense of personal freedom, or your feeling of independence? The place that this author wants us to go is to see that we're not clinging lightly to an inconsequential Savior. He wants us to see that we're clinging to a treasure of eternal, infinite value. And because of who this Savior is, what he's done for you and for me, that means everything for the rest of our eternity so that we can enjoy him and glorify him forever. Please pray with me. God, it is only through your Holy Spirit that this word would be living and active, would come to us sharper than a two-edged sword to pierce through our dull, unhearing hearts and to turn us, to reshape us and renew us into people that want to know and love you more. So I pray that your spirit would be at work now as we got to see you in your word and now we get to see you at the supper to feed us. So work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.